Hello everyone and welcome to the first in our new series of Norton Rose Fulbright Financial Services podcast, which we are calling EU Touchpoints, where financial services partners in our European offices discuss what they are seeing in their local market. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge here at Norton Rose Fulbright. And for our first podcast, we will be covering developments in the Netherlands. And for this, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Florida Nagelkirk, a partner in our Amsterdam office, and also Nikolai de Conning of Council in our Amsterdam office. Welcome to both of you. So let's start with perhaps one of the hot topics in the EU financial services um, regime, and that is the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, or CSRD. Uh, as many of our listeners will know, by way of background, in January this year, the CSRD entered into force. As a European directive, the CSRD does not directly create obligations for entities. Those obligations must be created under each member state's national legislation adopted pursuant to the CSRD. Now, EU member states have until the 6th of July 2024 to transpose the CSRD into their national laws. And with this in mind, Florida, to begin with, what has the AFM been recently doing on the CSRD? Yeah, so, so you're right. So we have the, the Ministry of Finance in the Netherlands need to publish the uh, proposal for implementation. And the, um, they did. And the AFM uh, just recently commented on that and provided their input. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, in the Netherlands, the AFM will be the regulator looking into the compliance with, with the, the, the rules to be. Um, so they looked into it and they, they sent a letter to the Ministry of Finance in response. And to be fair, I think mainly the, um, the comments are quite of technical nature in a sense that uh, it comments on the fact that it doesn't have um, now a administrative foundation or administrative law foundation. So therefore they are asking the ministry to create one. Um, there are some technicalities on um, uh, whether or not there is the member state options now really being proposed to be implemented or or not. So again, that's quite a legalistic, I think, discussion that they are are, are pointing out in the letter. Um, uh, so so in, in essence, what you do see is that, for instance, they are of, um, um, they, they quite like the, some of the member state options whereby they, they come to back to the Ministry of Finance where the Ministry of Finance says that they don't know for sure whether entities will use them and the AFM says, well, but just implement them because then there is an option for entities to consider uh, to use them. For instance, in relation to the um, uh, the so-called independent assurance services providers, uh, whether or not you need to use your own, uh, say, accountant to use uh, to, to, to the assurance or whether you can maybe, like I said, use the the ISEP. Uh, so th th those kind of uh, of the comments are are made. So uh, in that sense, it's to be honest, it's not very, um, I think, controversial. Okay, thanks, Fortia. Now the CSRT is part of the EU's approach to sustainability. As a member state of the EU, the Netherlands is also subject to the taxonomy regulation for sustainable activities and also the sustainable finance disclosure regulation. And like many other regulators, the AFM is conscious of greenwashing claims. Now, in June this year, the Dutch Authority for the Financial Markets, the AFM, it issued a consultation on draft guidelines on sustainability claims 
Uh, Flora, just keeping with you for the moment, what is your take on the draft guidelines? I think they are. It's a, it's a good guideline. So I wonder whether there will be uh, a lot of comments. The, the the one comment you could really have, or well, of course you can have multiple comments, but one uh, important one that it is quite open so again it's an open norm so even the guidelines are quite open so sometimes what we now see is that market participants quite like real sort of taking to the hand uh, a guidance and and just be quite pres prescriptive um but the AFM published the guidelines because of the fact well like you already said with the, the previous questions is that the sustainability is a supervisory priority for both of the Dutch uh, regulators and that market participants are, well, increasingly informing, say, their clients or, or, or members about sustainability. And because of the fact that it's so important, they, they, they say you need to be really uh, provide your information to, to correct, clear, and not misleading. And of course, everyone listening knows that that is sort of, the, I think it's the foundation, it's it's the rule that, that applies to all financial institutions uh, uh, generally. So it, that is nothing new, but if you now look at the guidelines, there are a couple of principles that they, they, that they, they put forward that are, I think, in line with that principle. So for instance, principle one is uh, sustainable, uh, sustainability claims must be accurate and not contain contradictions, but it's sort of obvious, but again, they make that point. Uh, it must paint a accurate picture and be representative of the product or the market participant. And I think that is one thing that is really an interesting one is that you need to uh, keep your sustainability claims up to date. Uh, so dated information often uh, gives the uh, ins insufficient insight or creates a false perception. So I think that might be also a tricky thing because if you have marketed in a newspaper, say months ago, but now it's it's it, you are doing a new campaign, but people don't throw away hard copy paper and newspapers if they do. Um, how do you, would it be your fault if someone then reads that advertisement instead of a new one but those kinds of, of questions could pop up um this the second principle is um the uh specify what the sustainability claim means for the market participants or the product and uh, ensure that the sustainability claims are substantiated so i think that of course relates to often the the the, the use terms of, of avoiding greenwashing uh, and the third principle is that um, uh, the sustainability claims need to be understandable, appropriate, and easy to find. Um, so again, terminology not not being very it should not be very complicated, and always um, keep the, in mind the reader's expectations and also sort of the level of, of expertise. Um, so in that sense, uh, it, it will be interesting to see what the outcome of the consultation will be. So the deadline for responding was uh, end of July. So we are now waiting for the uh, for the final guidelines. Okay, thank you, Flodra. Um, now on the SFDR itself, Nikolai, um, I believe that the AFM has issued a questionnaire on SFDR compliance. Could you say a few words about that? Hi, Simon. Yes, of course. Um, well, thank you for having us. Um, you're absolutely spot on. And the AFM has previously investigated SFDR compliance, both in 2021 and 2022. And in this year, in uh, August and September, they've rolled out fresh questionnaires to basically assess the state of compliance within the financial markets concerning SFDR. Um, when the first week of August, the AFM sent, as they call it, number of sustainability questionnaires 
to uh, investment firms and banks providing investment services, insurers offering insurance-related investment products, and pension funds. Um, in total, there are four distinct questionnaires they send out, and they are tailored to the specific service or products these institutions offer. Um, there's a general questionnaire on SFDR compliance, and then in particular, the, with the delegated regulations, which came into force uh, on the 1st of January this year. So it's a more generic questionnaire, which is which needs to be completed by all those uh, institutions I just mentioned. Um, then there is a another questionnaire which pertains to product development and sustainability factors under the insurance distribution directive, which is well, primarily relevant to insurers. Um, <clears throat> there's another one um, which has to do with the uh, which basically tackles the suitability requirements under MIFID II, um, considering the changes that were made to the suitability rules that integrate sustain sustainability factors, sustainability risks, and sustainability preference under MIFID II, uh, along with the associated uh, ESMA guidelines. And there's also a separate questionnaire which basically deals with the product distribution rules also under MIFID II uh, and, the, and the related ESMA guidelines. So that's sort of the first set, which was sent out in August. And then there's, if we move to, to September, DFM sent out a distinct sustainability questionnaire specifically to investment fund managers. And, and that questionnaire, that's just a single one that, that basically seeks to gain insights into how these managers comply with SFDR. And also, again, with a particular focus on the um, level two rules, the delegated regulations, which took effect on the the 1st of January of this year. And I think well, these questionnaires serve well, multiple purposes, but I think the most important is basically a dual purpose. And the first one of lack of that is to help DFM gain a deeper understanding of the um, extent and manner in which these institutions comply with the SFDR um, and the other sustainability focused regulatory rules. Um, and second, to provide the institutions themselves with valuable insights into how they compare to others in the market, uh, but also where improvements can be made by those institutions. Um, and if we look ahead, the AVM anticipates sharing the market-wide results in the beginning of next year, 2024, um, and that will be complete with examples and best practices as well, or good practices at least. Um, uh, and additionally, um, they will be furnishing those institutions with individualized reports and, well, depending on the outcomes of those reports, it's not unlikely that the AFM um, will undertake further investigations looking in more detail at those specific institutions and how they comply with these, with the SFDR and the other sustainability-related rules. Okay, thanks. And just staying with you for a moment, Nikolai, another key area of the regulatory regime at the moment is FinTech. And specifically, I just want to get on to crypto. Um, such companies wishing to provide crypto services in the Netherlands are required to register with the Dutch Central Bank, the DMB, under the Dutch Anti-Money Laundering and the Anti-Terrorist Financing Act. Now, the DMB has been actively enforcing compliance with the Dutch registration regime recently. Um, what is your take on the activity? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, as, well, the regime has has been there for over three years, and especially in recent years, last year and this year especially, 
uh, we've seen a lot of active enforcement by the Dutch Central Bank on basically compliance with registration obligation under the uh, the Dutch AMLCV law, the abbreviated WWFT. Um, so yeah, we see a lot of action there. DNB is actively approaching um, crypto parties, saying um, that they need to be registered, and if they don't, they will typically start off with an information request, requesting a lot of information, and then move on to the next phase, which is a form of enforcement. Could be an order subject to penalty, could be um, an administrative fine in, in well, running into the millions. Um, so DMB is taking this very seriously, um, and, and, and they actually want to expand this, uh, at least until uh, ECAR com comes into force. Uh, there's the legislative letter of this year, uh, which was published in May this year. It's basically, both both Dutch regulators of the AFM DMB typically send out these letters around May each year and set out their legislative wishes to the Dutch Minister, Minister of Finance. Um, and well, in, in, in the DIEM, in the Dutch Central Bank's letter, they also had a clear focus on AML, CFD compliance, um, and then again, especially in the crypto context. Um, so I think that, that they explicitly mentioned that they are looking how to better, um, better realize and better integrate the risk-based approach that is sort of key to AML CFT compliance, both at the European level, but it has been for a longer time in the Netherlands. So they really want to work together with the market, with all stakeholders involved, to see how they can best achieve that in in their supervision and in legislation. So that's something they really want to continue on doing. Um, and, well, we're very interested to learn how, how that's going to pan out in specific measures. But they also specifically reference crypto enforcement. So basically, they're saying there are different legal bases on which they can enforce. There's also this specific prohibition for third country crypto service providers to provide the services in the Netherlands. But um, there isn't that the Dutch Central Bank currently doesn't have a um, legal basis, at least not on 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 the base of that that uh, particular article, to enforce and impose fines on any party breaching that particular article. There are different ways of sort of imposing a fine, but this particular ground isn't covered. So they've asked that to change. So basically, connect uh, the, the power for them to impose an administrative fine when somebody is breaching that specific article in the WWFT. Um, and they are also asking for um, the power to be able to impose turnover-related administrative fines. Some things, for example, we know as part of the general EU general data protection regulation, there they want the same for non-compliance with Dutch AML CFT law. So currently, fines are typically, especially when it's a more serious breach, around the three, four million euro mark, which is basically the maximum, it can be doubled, can be increased under very specific circumstances, but they um, don't have the ability to make it turnover related at the moment. And that's something the Dutch Central Bank is specifically asking for, because they believe that um, should act as a more deterrent to crypto service providers. Yeah, there, there aren't any clear uh, signs that that's actually going to happen. There are no legislative proposals introducing this, um, but it's 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 sort of it's a very clear signal that they are asking for this. Um, and, and something really hot of the press is, um, as it's probably know, is that the um, Dutch um, Dutch government 
uh, basically became um, um, well, re resigned, so to say, um, and they are not allowed to um, work on certain larger decisions. And um, next, or I believe it's tomorrow, uh, they're having a vote on uh, a number of legislative proposals to basically determine is this controversial, which would mean they're no longer to progress it until there are new elections, which are in November, and not even until elections, but until there's a new uh, government in place, uh, they're not allowed to progress this. And the, there's a there's a pretty big legislative package on that list, which is the um, plan uh, on, on on combating um, uh, money laundering. And that's that's a sort of large larger package they've been working on for some years, um, where they, for example, want to ban any cash payments above 3,000 euros and, uh, and 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 quite some other pretty controversial legislative changes. Um, so it, it remains to be seen what the vote what the vote is going to be. But if it's if that legislative proposal is deemed controversial, that does mean it's going to be delayed, well, for quite some time because again, elections are in November. Then there needs to be a new government. So before that's being progressed, will probably be well in 2024, and then it still needs to go through the legislative process. So a lot of things happening there, and a lot of um, um, interesting developments ahead of us for sure. Okay, thanks. And just to clarify, when you mean tomorrow, we mean uh, 12th of September um, this year. Now, the other key piece of EU legislation at the moment is the Digital Operations Resilience Act, otherwise known as DORA, which aims to ensure that EU financial firms have better control of IT risks and are therefore more resilient to cyber threats. Now, I know many of our European offices, including the Amsterdam offices, have been doing client events um, on DORA, particularly as it comes into force um, in 2025 and is expected to have a significant impact on those financial institutions that are within scope. Uh, Florja, uh, could you just give our listeners an update on what the AFM has recently been doing on DORA? Yeah, sure. So so, so the AFM has, has, well, I think they have sort of started to raise awareness uh, that DORA is coming for everyone that didn't know that it was coming. Uh, but also, I think they, 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 they used the publication to also sig signal that uh, parties can already start uh, with, say, implementing DORA into their organization. And because the reason for that is that a lot of people said, well, okay, DORA is there, and now it's clear that it will come into force. But most of the technical details will be in all the delegated regulations, which are currently still only being consulted upon. And, and there are still a couple of batches uh, to come for consultation. So a lot of people, I think, are looking into it, but not taking, well, concrete actions. And what we see is that the AVM uh, provides some, um, well, like I said, a warning, a signal, as you have to really start preparing for DORA. It has a huge impact, indeed, like you also said, on uh, the organization. And, and it, it's, it's a, a large task. Um, and and the good or the interesting thing is that um, what they do in their in their document is that they uh, provide a couple of um, steps that they think that a firm can already take. For instance, in relation to ICT risk management, they say firms can already start working on the framework for ICT risk management, uh, whether it is in line with the enterprise risk management. 
They say you can already start working on the arrangements for monitoring, handling, and follow-up of deviating activities, including for production of um, backups. Um, they also say you can already start working on the ICT business continuity plan that is periodically tested. So they they and and with the, with with the the five points. So ICT risk management they do it, but they also said something in relation to ICT related incidents, the testing of the digital operational resilience, management of ICT risks of third party providers plus the governance and organization. So they already sort of say you can get started. Um, and I think that is very important for people to realize that you really indeed can get started, even though not all the detail is ready yet. But what we typically see with these kinds of large projects that, let's be honest, almost no one is ready the day that it comes into effect. But what the regulators has, have been doing with these kinds of large implementation projects is that they will look into the firm's sort of preparations. And if you are not ready uh, on day one, but you haven't even started where you could already have started uh, uh, months ago, years ago, they will hold that against you. Um, so in that sense, it is really important to take this guidance uh, uh, to heart because of the fact that this is apparently items that they think is is of um of interest plus it is in their mind something that you can already take to hand and and, and act on it so um that will they they will take that into account at one point in time when dora is in effect and that the regulators will look into whether or not your organization is um well is already complying or where they where where it is in the process of becoming compliant thanks Claudia. i know you've been working uh, both you and Nicolai, with a number of firms on DORA implementation. Um, just to stay with you, Flodra, for a moment, um, there's also been, I saw, a DMB investigation into proprietary trading firms. And also, if I understand it correctly, the DMB and the AFM are also coordinating in their supervision in relation to the IFD and the IFR. Is that right? Yes, so um, as most of the people uh, know, is that in the Netherlands we have two supervisors. So we have the Twin Peaks model. Uh, the Dutch Central Bank is for compliance and, and supervision of the prudential supervision. And the AFM is, uh, uh, is, is looking into compliance with, the, say, the conduct of business supervision. Um, so in relation to the prudential side, so the market risk, for instance, the, in relation to the proprietary traders, it is indeed the Dutch Central Bank that is looking into that, even though the primary regulator is, is the AFM. Um, so in, for instance, in relation to the market risk, they, they, the Dutch Central Bank looked into that. They wanted to see and get, get some insight into the reporting and the control framework for market risk and, of course, for proprietary traders that I think is the most important risk there is. And um, therefore, they, they they looked at that. What they the research showed is that they typically maintain a substantial capital buffer above minimum requirements, which is not necessarily held to absorb losses, but because of the trading opportunities offered by volatile markets, which is of course where the proprietary firms um, uh, make make their money. Um, uh, and 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 they say in in the importance of the intraday and real time monitoring of the capital requirements for market risk is evident. And of course, there are a lot of uh, parties that use the clearing member for that, but also they they typically the larger firms have that sort of in house as well. Um, so it it it's something that they have looked into. And for me, surprising is 
sort of one of the comments that they made as a result of the investigation, they said they would like to remind all the supervised institutions of the importance of data quality. So data is a crucial resource for, well, of course, supervision, but also for functioning of the markets. And what they say is that, uh, that they still uh, often find errors in prudential reporting, and therefore they ask everyone again to pay attention to this. And I think that sort of ties into with an opinion they, they published with the AFM recently, also, also on, on, on data management, uh, the use of market data and data quality, which of course often also ties into with the whole sustainability and ESG complaints that people cannot report on those if the market quality of the, the data of the quality is not uh, good enough. But that's also in relation to this. Um, and so what the because of the fact that some of the um, rules in IFD and IFR, which is, of course, in principle, a prudential set of rules, um, there is sometimes a, um, well, say, say not completely clear who is in charge uh, uh, as a regulator in, 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 in relation to the supervision of certain uh, topics. Um, and therefore, uh, also sometimes that the AFM and DNB ask similar questions or use similar data. Um, so market parties have complained about the fact that they have been sometimes inundated with uh, investigations by the AFM and DNB on certain topics relating to IFD, IFR. So they have uh, signed indeed uh, working arrangements. They, they published it um, actually indeed today, the 11th of September. Um, and they made some additional arrangements, which hopefully uh, will burden some or, or will unburden some of the market participants and make indeed the uh, supervision um, and, and well a bit better um, in that sense. And I think one of the topics where you really typically see it in, and where we often also uh, come across it is in relation to, for instance, remuneration. Remuneration is, in, is laid down for investment firms laid down in IFD, IFR, um, but in principle it is a, a topic of interest for the AFM, even though you have to provide information in relation to remuneration to the EBA, which of course is the European Banking Authority. So therefore, uh, I think this is a, this is a good a step forward and hopefully it really works. Okay, thank you. And also in recent years, data and digitization, they're becoming more and more important in the financial services sector. Um, Nikolai, very briefly, the DMB and the AFM have recently reached an agreement on data and digitization. Well, what are the headlines from the agreement? Yes, thanks, Simon. Um, yeah, uh, they have, the DMB and the AFM, they've um, agreed on a new or renewed cooperation agreement because there, are, there already was one. And the previous version of the agreement dates from 2016. Obviously, since then, a lot of change, a lot of, a lot has changed. Um, many of the existing regulations have been amended or superseded, and there are some, some key new laws and regulations, uh, both national and from from Europe, uh, have entered into force in the Netherlands, and that's why um, they've now entered into this renewed cooperation agreement, and and there's a clear focus on uh, more attention to data and digitization in that agreement. Um, so basically, that agreement sets out how the two regulators will collaborate, uh, but I'll uh, go into detail around data requests, digital research, uh, research. And what's also interesting to see is that this agreement even extends beyond supervisory tasks. So 
And there's also agreements on business operations, sharing sort of sharing those, creating synergies, uh, digitalization of supervision, and also sharing of human resources. So there's a very clear commitment to broader cooperation, um, uh, including secondments between the AFM and DMB. Um, and and, and yeah, displacement, that's uh, a, key, a key aspect in the supervisory world nowadays, and it's also recognized by the AFM and DMB. Um, so they really want to focus on digital research, uh, research and um, the teams responsible for digital investigation within the AFM and DMB are basically joining forces. And they strongly believe that, that this is going to lead to more expertise, uh, more capacity, and then the regular, regulators would have independently. So that, um, according to the regulators, that's going to make the supervision, the supervision more effective. Um, and we're interested to learn how that's going to play out in practice. Thanks, Nikolai. Something to watch out for in the future. Uh, and then in, as my final question, uh, during the summer in July, uh, I saw that the DMB had published draft Q&As on the independent functioning of a supervisory board. Now, that was the consultation which is going to close on the 30th of September, 2023. But Florja, uh, could you just briefly tell our listeners um, its importance? Yeah, so the, the reason why it is important is that um, because the, uh, also thanks to IFDI for more and more um, uh, firms, uh, regulated firms in the Netherlands need to have a supervisory board or if you have a one tier board, uh, also say you have to have non-executive members and what they, they ask of of the, say the composition of that that board is that there is a, a kind of independency of the board or of the shareholder because of the fact that they typically these people this board needs to well supervise and potentially guide the board in in how they run the business and there what they now see is that they they require those people to have an independence uh, of mind an independence of appearance and also the uh, the formal independence because of the fact that typically there's in a shareholder structure there's often um uh, also, some uh, someone appointed from, um, say, the parent company uh, on on the board, um, and they do want to have some kind of independence. Uh, so either so, and and what we have found why it is interesting is is because even if you are voluntarily putting a supervisory board uh, uh, in place, because not all regulated entities are by law um, obligated to have a, a supervisory board, um, they, 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 they more and more require it. Um, and I think some of the aspects that they take into account for looking whether or not you need to have one in, in place, plus uh, the, the composition of the board, that is now set out also in the Q and A's, and that is, I think, interesting to sort of note because they, they, they have uh, now consulted six sort of Q and A's, which all are the same, but it it, it relates to a supervisory board of bank, of an insurance company, of a payment services provider, of an um, electronic money institution, a clearing institution, and a so-called um, uh, exchange institution, and 
it will also be applicable to uh, premium pension institutions. So it is an interesting uh, uh, Q and A, and and like I said, the, the 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 circumstances that they take into account are interesting to see, and I think it would be interesting to get comments on it because we have seen that the Dutch central bank not always takes the same approach. So therefore, it is it will really be interesting to see. Uh, what the outcome of the, the consultation will be. But for instance, they will look at the, the nature, uh, the risk and the complexity, uh, uh, but also on say proportionality in relation to, uh, to, the, uh, to the entity on whether or not you need to have, for instance, three supervisory board members or whether two may be sufficient of which one will be considered to be independent. They will look at the group structure. They will look on whether or not there is a majority shareholder in the group or in the entity itself, uh, or well, shareholder in the entity. But they will also look on whether or not the mother, the parent company is in the EU or outside the EU. Uh, because if it's within the EU, it potentially already falls within supervision of a other uh, member state's um, uh, supervisor, whereas if it's outside the EU, it may not. So that, th those are the aspects that they take into account. And like I said, what we have found in, in practice is that it's not always um, completely similar in sort of similar cases uh, applied by the Dutch Central Bank. So it will be interesting to see, uh, but it is really always something that we take into account uh, when we, for instance, do a license application, or if we help, uh, for instance, in a merger or takeover with the composition of, of the new boards or an amended board, uh, we always take these into account um, because of the fact that otherwise it might, might be that we propose a supervisory board uh, or a member of a supervisory board that the Dutch Central Bank is not really happy with or will not accept. So we always try to take these to heart and, and take them into account in the considerations. But therefore, it is good uh, if we get some, well, some. it will be good to see the comments on this Q&A uh, and see what the Dutch Central Bank will decide in the end. Okay, thanks, Flojo. Uh, we may call you back for a follow-up um, yeah, on, on this one. So my thanks to Flodra and Nikolai for sharing their thoughts on the latest Dutch regulatory developments. We will, of course, continue to track uh, regulatory developments in the Netherlands on the Dutch page of our Regulation Tomorrow blog. Many thanks for listening. Goodbye.